right, so we're, uh, we're continuing our, our series, uh, finishing our series this week, uh, entitled Identity Crisis, all right? And uh, so in past weeks, we talked about uh, the power of our words, and, uh, and then last week, of course, we talked, about, um, we talked about our enemy, and our enemy is Satan himself. It's important for us to, uh, to be reminded of that reality. Our enemy is nobody with skin on. All right, uh, it's not another human being that we'll ever lay eyes on. They're not our enemy. Um, our enemy is Satan himself, and we've got to be clear about that. All right, uh, our enemies are not the Republicans or the Democrats, or the people uh, with this color skin or the other color skin. It's not the people that think this way or that way, or it's none of that. None of that is our enemy. None of them are our enemy. All right, our enemy is Satan. All right, and uh, the devil, Satan, he's the enemy. And we've got to be very clear about that. And, uh, you know, while our world wants to divide us and wants to try, to try to pit us against another group or another person or another group of people or religion or what, you know, you name it, and our enemy is Satan. He's the enemy. We've got to be very, very specific about that. But uh, we learned uh, over the course of this series, Proverbs 18, 21, uh, tells us that the tongue has power, the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit, right? And so our words are powerful, all right? What we say about others, what we say about ourselves, it's a powerful reality, and we need to be careful about the words that we use, all right? There's a responsibility. Matter of fact, Scripture tells us that we will give an account for every idle word, every single word. We'll give an account for that. And, uh, and so we need to realize that our words are very important. John 10, 10, we've been looking at that as well. It says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life, and have it to the full. Satan is all about wanting to steal, kill, and destroy. You, your family, your loved ones. But ultimately, Christ has come. God has come into our lives because he wants us to have life and have it abundantly or to the full. All right, let's pray. Father, you're faithful. We ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would allow this message, this time together, God, to be significant in our lives. I pray you'd have your will accomplished in every way. Lord, allow me to step out of the way, God, that you would speak to and through, your, through me to your people. God, get glory, we pray, in this house, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we consider today, we're looking at, uh, this message is entitled, The Name Game. All right, the name game. And the idea is um, that our name is important. All right, our name is important. There's a lot of importance attached to a name. Now, I, you know, my name is, is Brooke Alvin. We got, you know, I'm not saying that that name specifically is important, but what we've got to look at today is our identity. Who are we? All right, what do you, what do you think of when you think of the name Brooke or Alvin or Michelle or Larry or, you know, what, what do you think of? What, what are the attributes? What are the, the, the tendencies, the personality? What do you think of? It's important. I remember this. I remember, you know, years ago when Courtney and I were having our kids and, and we were going through, and any, any parent has done this, and maybe you've even, if you don't have kids, maybe you've even been a part of this process, you know, just because of your proximity to folks who are having kids or what have you. But, but you go through, like, what are we going to name our kid? What are we going to name our child, you know? And, and you go through the, maybe there, you know, there's these books you can get or you can look online or you can just come up with them out of your own experience, out of scripture, whatever. And, and so folks have different ways of, of, of gathering a group of names. And then what do you do? All right. If you're like us, you go through and you go, who do we know that has that name? Right. And you're like, oh no, I know. So no, 
I know somebody with that name crossing that one off, right? Or, or oh, I know somebody with that name. We're keeping that one, right? Because you think highly of, but, but you really can eliminate and, and, and kind of circle in on a few names based on people you know with names like that, right? And, uh, and that's just the way that, that things go. But help me with this. What things do we associate with names like Lucifer, Hitler, Osama, Bin Laden, Santa, Gabriel, Jesus, you name it. Names are significant. Names are significant. Could you imagine? What if someone brought in their newborn and they were like, oh, you know, you just had this baby. Babies are awesome, you know, and everybody's like, oh, how cute, how cool, you know, it's incredible, congratulations. And they're like, yeah, he's a, his name is Adolf. And you're like, excuse me? What did you say? You know, and you're just like, wow, okay, wow. You know, and maybe you don't say anything, but you're thinking, my goodness, why would you do that? I can't imagine, do, you know? And uh, because names are significant, aren't they? I mean, they have certain connotations, meaning certain, certain substantive things attached to names. And uh, what we all hope, what we all want uh, is, it, is it when people think of your name, they think good things. They think man or woman of God, man or woman of integrity, somebody. You hope they wouldn't eliminate your name because they know you, right? You hope that it's something that they go, okay, that one can stay. That one's all right, you know, uh, whether or not they like the name, whatever. But, but the, the, you wouldn't disqualify the name based on what they know of you. We hope that would be the case, but names are significant. I also think about in Genesis chapter 2, 19 and 20. This speaks to the, the value and the importance of names. Look at what it says here. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the, in the sky. It goes on. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the idea is that here's all of creation, here's Adam, and God brings a parade ultimately all of the animals before Adam and says, what's its name? It's a very cool narrative that we see here because we know that God spoke and created it all, and then he, man made in his image, he parades creation in front of man and says, you tell its name. What do you call it? You know, and I always think about that, and it's fun to imagine this, and, and uh, what, if, what if Adam decided an elephant was a flea? You know, or or a, a alligator was a was a parrot, or I mean, it just I mean, he just in that moment was like, that's a that's an alligator right there, that's an elephant, you know, and he just that's what they were, and our names are significant, our names matter. It gives us to some extent a descriptor, gives us our identity, and when people hear your name, they ascribe certain certain qualities to you, good and bad, but they think of you through your name. And so as we look at Scripture today, there are a lot of different ways we could take this. And truth is, is I've, as I've preached through this series over the years, I've, I've really uh, you know, honed in on different uh, biblical characters. There are a lot of folks um, that have had name changes in Scripture, all right? We could look at Abraham. We could look at Sarah. Uh, we could look at... 
at Saul to Paul. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of them uh, that for various reasons had name changes. Some of it was God doing it. Uh, we even have scenarios like Daniel that became Belteshazzar, right? Uh, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This transition where they were taken from, uh, you know, from a, a Hebrew heritage into a Babylonian heritage and, and got a name change. So there's all sorts of name changes that we could talk about in Scripture. And all of that is incredibly interesting. I encourage you to do a study around that sometime. But today we're going to look primarily at the story of Jacob. All right, we're going to look at the story of Jacob. And so the first thing I want, to look, want us to look at is this. What is, what is in a name? First point, what is in a name? And we're, again, we're looking at Jacob. Genesis 25, verses 24 to 26 says this. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. This is talking about Rebekah. And uh, the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. How many of you know that's a... Uh, that's the stuff, uh, you know, scary movies are made of right there. But uh, anyway, uh, so the first to come out was red, and his whole body was a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Esau ultimately means hairy, all right? It means he's a hairy one. And uh, so they, they, I mean, very creative. I mean, very, very, I don't know, whatever it is. But like, like, hey, this first boy, his name is, he's hairy. That's his name. All right, and, uh, and so they just went with that. Uh, verse 26 goes on. After this, his brother came out uh, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Uh, Isaac was about 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them, and so the idea is this. Uh, Esau was named uh, Harry. He's Harry. Let's call him Esau, which means the hairy one. Uh, and then Jacob came out clenching the heel of his brother, and so they named him the supplanter or the one that trips up or the one that pursues to overthrow. That's what Jacob's name meant. It was almost as though as he was in this delivery process grasping the heel of his brother, the, the, the picture that we get there is that almost there was this idea that he wanted to pull him back in so he could advance first and be the firstborn. And that was the life that he began to live. You see, Ultimately, as we read before this in chapter 25, we see that, that uh, Rebecca was told by God that she had two nations in her womb and that the younger would rule over the older, right? And so she knew that there was going to be some vying for position, some competition, if you will, some, some uh, manipulation and strategizing that would take place uh, in their life. And then here comes uh, Jacob grasping the heel of Esau. So we have the hairy one and we have the manipulative one. And, uh, and Jacob is given this name. It's interesting because from the very beginning, we see this competition beginning. From the very moment that they came on the scene. And as I, as I think about Jacob, I think about each one of us. Because it's easy for us to read scripture and read it and not compute any of it. It's easy for us to think, man, that was them. That's not me. Doesn't mean anything for me. All the rest. But here's the deal. There's some Jacob in each one of us. And we need to own that today. We're talking about this identity thing. And we need to identify the fact that each one of us has a manipulator on board. We have a desire to, to, to push others down, to propel ourselves. We have that inside each one of us. Now, God will help us to move past that, and with his help, we can, we can keep that, that terrible person at bay, and God can help us to crucify the flesh and do all of those things. But it left unchecked, man, we will be like Jacob in that regard. We'll do it. 
Uh, we don't want to get specific today. I'm not asking anybody to raise hands or speak up, but we know we've all done that. We've seized an opportunity. Now, maybe it's been recent. Maybe it's been many years ago, whatever the case is. But we've seized opportunities where people were weak, where people were not thinking straight. We've seized the moment to step up, to elevate ourselves and to push others down. You see, Jacob's life was plagued with these opportunities. Over and over again, he did this. Jacob took advantage of others. Genesis chapter 25, 29 to 34 says this. He said to his brother, or he said to Jacob, this is Esau talking to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. He came in from the field starving. That's why it was also called Edom. All right, verse uh, 31 goes on. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Here's the deal, all right? Let's get this picture. So Esau comes in from, from hunting, from working, this sort of thing. Uh, Jacob was one, Scripture talks about, that stayed among the tents. In other words, he was kind of a homebody. He didn't really go out and hunt and do those sort of things. Esau was that guy. Esau was the, the hunter. He was the, the, the hunter and gatherer. He was the one that went out. He smelled like dirt. He, dirty dude, you know, he, he was the one that needed extra deodorant, you know, and needed to shower up. Bit more. Jacob was one that he, he kind of took after himself. He, 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 he helped mom around the kitchen, helped around the house a bit. He didn't really adventure out and do so many of those things. Nothing wrong with either. It's just a personality difference that they had. So here's the deal. Esau comes in from working, man, working hard, doing his thing, hunting, doing all that. He was famished, so starving, so hungry. So he comes in, and Jacob's working up some, some stew, and he's like, hey, give me some of that stew. And Jacob says, first, sell me your birthright. What? Give me some stew. And he's like, give me your birthright. And he's like, what? He's like, I got no use for a birthright. What, what do you, I, I, don't, I don't really care about it. I, I just want something to eat. He says, look, I'm about to die. No, go, go back. He says, look, I'm about to die. Now, maybe he's being a little dramatic. Maybe we're seeing a little flair for the dramatic. I don't know. Uh, certainly he wasn't at the point of dying, um, but he was very hungry. We can read that in. Uh, Esau said, what good is a birthright to me? So he says, ultimately, I'm hungry. I, I don't, the birthright is, is, is really a, a, a secondary issue, not, not anything I'm worried about right now. So if you'll give me something to eat, then sure, whatever. Birthright doesn't matter. You, you can have whatever. Verse 33 goes on to say, but Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Now, we don't get much into birthrights and these sort of things, uh, but ultimately a birthright. Ultimately, uh, Esau had the birthright being the firstborn, which means that he was responsible for, for looking after the family, that he, at the, in the, at, the, at the point that his father would pass, it would have been Esau's responsibility to be the priest of the home, to, to look after the family, to take care of the issues of the home, to help the family move forward, and, and to, to ensure his father's legacy, these sort of things. That would be the, the position of the birthright, and Esau gave it to Jacob for a bowl of stew. But you see this, you see that Jacob was looking for an opportunity. I mean, who in their right mind would think, hey, you're hungry, all right, give me your birthright. You're like, what? What? Excuse me? Like, that doesn't even compute. How do we, how do we get there? That doesn't even relate. But he was looking for an opportunity. We also read about, if we go on reading, ultimately, the fact that, that uh, Jacob stole Esau's blessing. And so the blessing that was reserved for the firstborn 
Jacob ultimately manipulated the whole thing, stole it. His mother helped him. It's a whole, it's a whole Maury Povich or Jerry Springer episode that goes on there. I mean, it's just crazy the way that all plays out. They end up dressing him up and, uh, and, and doing all these things, you know, and he starts to talk deeper. And I mean, the whole get up, you're like, this is a soap opera happening right now. And, uh, but that's there. And, and so he steals the blessing that's reserved for the firstborn. And so he has the birthright. He has the firstborn blessing. He stole the whole deal from Esau. Everything. And it's a crazy scenario. Ultimately, we read that, uh, that Jacob takes the birthright, takes a blessing, and leaves. Because he knows this. His brother's a skilled hunter, and his brother, brother is angry. Like, angry's not the word. His brother is, is just terribly angry. I mean, ready to, ready to kill him ultimately. And he goes, look, he's skilled at hunting. If he wants me dead, I got to go. I got to get out of here. This is bad. So he takes off. He ends up going uh, to, his, to his relative Laban's place, and, uh, and he goes there, and, and it's, a, it's an incredible scenario that we find here. But, but, but God humbles Jacob through manipulation. Imagine that. Imagine that the master manipulator that, that, that really swindled his way into birthright and into a firstborn blessing and takes off on this mad dash to avoid, you know, running into trouble with his brother, gets manipulated and through that gets humbled. The master manipulator shows up at Laban's house, this is his uncle's house, and, and, uh, and we're reading in uh, Genesis 29, 15 through 19. It says, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, you should not work for me for nothing. Tell me, your wage, what your wages should be. It goes on in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters, and the name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Verse 17, Leah had weak eyes. I don't know what that means, but she wasn't quite the looker that Rebecca was. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful, all right? And uh, verse 18, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. In verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give you, give her to you than any other man. Stay here with me. And so the idea is this. Jacob went. He was working. Laban said, look, we're relatives. I want to make sure I take care of you. What, what should, let, let's work this out. What, what's your, your rate? He says, I'll work for seven years if you'll give me your daughter's hand in marriage, your younger daughter's hand in marriage. And he says, yes, that's, that's sufficient. Let's do that. So he worked for these seven years. Seven years is a long time. I think that's a, that's a pretty incredible love story if somebody wants to write that one. Um, but that, that's a pretty neat scenario. Now let's pick it up in verse 21. It says, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Verse, uh, verse 22 goes on to say, so Laban brought together all the people of the, uh, of, uh, of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her, verse 24. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. Goes on to say, when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? 
Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. And then verse 27, finish this daughter's bridal week. Then I will give the younger one to you also in return for another seven years of work. And so as it goes, the master manipulator that leaves town with his birthright, with his firstborn blessing, man, he made out, takes off so his brother doesn't kill him. He goes to Laban's house. He finds the woman of his dreams, and he says, look, I'll work seven years if I can have her. And Laban says, that sounds good to me. Seven years is good. He works seven years. Ultimately, he pulls a bait and switch on him here, gives him the wrong wife, and he's like, what have you done? And he says, all right, here's the deal. Seven more years for the one you wanted the first time. He worked the seven more years. The story goes, he ended up marrying Rachel, the whole whole deal. It's a crazy ordeal. But what we see here is that the master deceiver got deceived and he got humbled in the process. God used Jacob's own strategy against him. So not only do we see what's in a name, Jacob's name was significant. It tells us a lot about his whole life. Jacob, the supplanter, the one who seeks to overthrow or trip up, that was his life. That was who he was, how he functioned how he interacted with folks. That was everything about him. Until God humbled him. You see, Jacob finally got real. He finally got honest. He finally got surrendered and sincere when his heart got humbled. Second thing we want to look at today is this. Jacob's identity and name were changed by God. Totally changed by God. Genesis 32, 22 to 32, bear with me, says this. That night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two female servants, and his seven sons, or his 11 sons, I'm sorry, I got a glare on the TV, I'm trying to, um, and crossed the ford of Javik. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him. Go ahead. Okay, let me, let me see. Maybe I need to jump here. Here we go. Let me do this. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, Israelites, do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So what we find here is we find a scenario where Jacob is humbled before God. He's no longer seeking to manipulate. Matter of fact, he's on his way back to Esau. He leaves Laban. He's going back to Esau. And if you read the story, he sends lots of gifts ahead. Last he heard many, many years ago, but last he heard Esau was after his head, man. He wanted him gone. And he knew Esau was skilled enough to do it. He knew he had no defense except that he was coming back to his brother. He was seeking forgiveness. He was seeking reconciliation. He was seeking restoration of relationship. And so he's going toward Esau, totally a different man, and he's going toward him and he's sending all of these gifts ahead of him. And as Esau is meeting all of these folks that are traveling ahead of Jacob with all this livestock and all these various goods and things like this, and Jacob's sending ahead his gifts, he's going, you know, who are you? And they're like, we're from our Lord Jacob. This is a gift for you. Trying, you know, Jacob is trying to abate, you know, the anger and the, and the ferocity of, of Esau, you know, and trying to, to make amends even before he sees him face to face. And... Uh, it's on that journey, ultimately, that he comes to this place. A different person. And Scripture says that he struggled with a man. And, and as, you know, theologians believe, and it seems like Scripture speaks to the fact that this was, a, this was an encounter with God. That he struggled with God. That Jacob was wrestling somehow with, with a personified version of God. He was wrestling with God himself. And that there was a grappling back and forth. And that Jacob was pursuing God with such tenacity and ferocity that he wouldn't let go unless God blessed him. He was a desperate man. Desperate like no, I mean, he, he thought his very life could be demanded of him very soon. He was desperate. And he struggled with God and he pursued God and he said, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And as the story goes, God blessed him, but beyond blessing him, he changed his name. He said, you'll no longer be known as the manipulator, the supplanter. Your new name is Israel. Israel means you struggle and strive with God. You see, you're no longer going to be about trying to find the shortcuts and trying to manipulate your way through life. You're now going to be known as one that pursues God. And he changed his name. He touched his hip. I love that he touched his hip. Because get this, get this picture in your head. Yeah, he's got a new name. Yeah, hey, Jacob. No, not Jacob anymore. I go by Israel now. My new name is Israel. Wow, that's that's a different name. You used to that was a that was kind of a, a bad name, you know, kind of you you're this deceitful guy and Israel. Israel you strive for, you're that guy now. Wow. But he touched his hip. So for the rest of his life, every single step he'd take, he would be reminded of that encounter with God. Every single step he took, 
every single step. Yeah. Lord, you're faithful. Thank you, Lord. Now, I'm sure it bugged him. I'm sure there were days that he didn't like that that was, but it was a constant reminder. He never could get past it. It drew him back to a place where he was his most humble, his most surrendered, his most sincere. Every step he ever took from that moment on changed him. And friends, as we consider this today in light of our identity, the identity crisis that's all around us, people trying to figure out who are we, who am I, what am I here for? Am I supposed to be about these things or about those things? Am I supposed to, 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 to act like these folks or those folks or like these people suggest? Are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do? It is a season of our lives that we need to look and realize that there's a deceiver on board and we need to pursue God just like Jacob. I know in my heart that God desires to touch each one of us in a deeply personal way. He changed Jacob completely. And maybe that's been your story. Maybe you've had an encounter with God oh, at some point in your life where he just changed you in an instant. I, uh, we've heard some of the testimonies of some of our dear brothers and sisters, and we know God, they, they've had, God's just changed them. He took the taste of alcohol away. He, he raised them out of addiction. He raised them out of, out of, out of crazy, you know, sinful lifestyle in an instant. It was just God did what he did, and it was incredible. But do you know that that's not a, a one-time thing? That's a God wants to do that again and again, man, and raise, up out of, raise us up out of that pit of, of pride and arrogance and, and all the things that get caught up. I and mean, every one of us need that, and we need to pursue the Lord saying, God, I, I don't have it figured out yet. I'm not there yet. And, friends, we need to know that, and not in a, not in a self-deprecating way, but in an honest way saying, God, I haven't arrived yet. Thank God I'm not who I used to be, but I'm not who I'm supposed to be yet either. And the same God that met, met Jacob in the at Jabbok that day and, and touched him in a, in, in a profound way, changed his name, wrenched his hip, changed his life, desires to meet with you and I. Wants us to have an equally impactful story to share of the faithfulness of God. Scripture says that we'll find him when we seek him with all our heart. He wants to be found by us. He wants to have audience with us. He wants our lives to be impacted by his power. He wants that. And the only thing that stands in the way is you and me. We can't blame it on anyone else. We stand in our own way. And God wants to touch our hearts today. He wants us to know the depth of his love today. He wants us, just like Jacob, to push through and push past the excuses. Jacob had become a master manipulator. He was really good at what he did. And friends, you and I can get really good at what we do too. We can learn to say the right things and do the right things and act the right ways. And all the while, our heart can be far from God.
we can play the part and not be the man or woman of God we're supposed to be. You know you can, and I can too. And God invites us to a place where we're just humble. We embrace our failures. We embrace the reality of who we really are. Not who everybody thinks we are. Not who we convince people we are. Not who we hope we could be. Not who we were that one time back when. But who we truly are. When we live in that reality and go, God, this is me. He knows it. It's no shock to him. He's always known it. And we come humble and say, Lord, I just need you, I need you to touch my life. I need you to change some things in me. He's waiting for us to open the door to that. He's waiting for us to give, us, give, give him freedom to do that. He's willing. And I just believe the Lord wants to do that today. Donna, if you could come and I want to pray with you as we get ready to wrap up this part of the service. If you bow your heads. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us courage. God, that you would help us. If you're here, and I'm asking you to be a bit courageous today, I'm asking you to maybe step out a little further, a little more deliberately than maybe what you're generally accustomed to. Because I believe God wants to do something unique today, different today. If you're here and you say, Pastor, I don't know if you'd say this, I want more of God than what I've got. I want more than what I've got. And I know I stand in my own way. If that's you today, say, look, I want more of God than what I've got. And I want to get out of my own way. If that's you, I just invite you to slip a hand up. So yeah, I want more than I got. And I want to get out of my way. Thank you for your hands, lots of hands. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to ask you to be one step bolder. Here we go. Man, let's mean business with the Lord today. Let's do this today. Because what if today's the day that everything changes? What if today's the day Jacob could forever look back and remember that day? What if today was that day for you? So if you raise your hand or if you should have raised your hand saying, look, I want more of God and I want to get out of my own way. If that's you, I just invite you to stand right to your feet. Stand right to your feet. Thank you. I'll stand with you. And let's just pray, church. Let's pray. And let's ask the Lord to, to just move in our hearts. And if you're online, I invite you to stand with us as well. Father, we ask you in Jesus' name to flood our hearts. God, we ask you to do what only you can do in our lives. God, we seek you and you alone. Father, we tried our own way. We've done our own thing. We've tried to play out the plans of the world, God. We've tried to, to work things in our favor, God. We've tried to figure things out in our own strength. And, Lord, we surrender. We give up. We need you. We need you, God. We need more of you. More of you, God, in our lives. We don't need more of anything or anybody else, but we need more of you. We need you to fill us, God. 
saturate our hearts, God, every part, God, that nothing would be held back, nothing would be off limits. Everything would be changed, God. Every part of us. God, that we would be new people according to your power that's at work within us. God, do that for your glory. We stop making excuses. We stop holding back. And we ask you to move for your glory. You're faithful today. Thank you.